0: This week on the Back Table podcast.
1: I think it's those extreme patients that are the most challenging to clear of allergic fungal. Luckily, is the kids often, or in my experience, more often than the older ones present with unilateral disease. And if you can get that unilateral disease and you can do a really good job of clearing all the mucin, then those patients do really well. But it's those, the ones that, you know, I remember over the years, the really expanded sinuses, the crazy CT scans, those, you know, are really, really difficult because it is so challenging to get all that mucin out because it's, you know, these unusual crevices, these areas where our instruments are not intended to get to at that depth. And I think that those end up, and because of maybe how long it's been going on, those are really sometimes the most challenging.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back Table ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT, and we bring you the best and brightest in the field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Cook Medical's otolaryngology head and neck surgery clinical specialty strives to provide otolaryngologists with minimally invasive solutions to address unmet needs. Areas of focus include head and neck, otology, and laryngology, with products ranging from a full suite of interventional cylindroscopy products and the Doppler blood flow monitoring system to the Biodesign otologic repair graft and the Hercules 100 transnasal esophageal balloon. For more information, visit cookmedical.com forward slash otolaryngology. Now, back to the show. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm at Pediatric ENT here with my partner, Dr. Ashley Aiken. Good morning, Ash. Hey, good morning, Gopi. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm really excited, excited for our guest day because I I kind of fangirled our guest at COSM. <laughs> I was like, Dr. Amber Luong, Dr. Amber Luong. my name is Gopi Shaw, I'm a Pediatric ENT. Oh, my God. I've listened to you, and I'm really excited. I have this podcast. Can we please do it? <laughs> and she was kind enough to email back and respond. So we have... Dr. Amber Luang, M.D., Ph.D., she is an otolaryngologist and rhinologist, a true surgeon scientist. She serves as a professor and vice chair for academic affairs in the Department of Otolaryngology at the McGovern Medical School of the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. With a joint appointment within the Center of Immunology and Autoimmune Disease, at the Institute of Molecular Medicine. She currently serves on the board of directors and will be starting her tenure as the second vice president for the American Rhinologic Society in the fall of this year. Welcome to the
1: show, Amber. Good morning. Good morning, Gopi. Good morning, Ash. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Go women power.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely.
1: Before we kind of get into
0: it, I wanted to just say I love the ARS. I love the women in rhinology subsection of the ARS. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And you kind of were part of starting that group, yes?
1: Yeah. So, gosh, it was about 10 or so years ago now, and there was a a group of us that we went to a happy hour and we were, you know, sitting around and thinking, what a great opportunity. Because now we've got like this critical mass of women who are interested in rhinology And we had a a lot of the the common issues that we have with our men colleagues, but there are some unique aspects of being a woman in rhinology. And and so we thought it'd be kind of nice to kind of get together. And so we developed this women in rhinology. And I think, you know, it's sort of modeled after the women in otolaryngology, but it's sort of taken off in several different societies as well. So it's nice to see, I think the otology group is developing one and the pediatric group, maybe. So, so been really a fun opportunity and a great group of women. Well,
0: I'm getting emails from Patricia Loftus. She kind of helps organize it. And every time I see an email from Patricia Loftus, it makes me smile and I get excited. So I open them and I'm like, yes. So, anyways, um, <laughs> all right. Well, can you first tell us a little bit about yourself, Amber, and your practice?
1: Well, so as you alluded to, I do have an opportunity to have a basic science lab where we are interested in understanding the pathophysiology of chronic rhinosinusitis with a particular interest in allergic fungal uh, rhinosinusitis, um, meaning we're interested in understanding environmental triggers. But I also have a very busy clinical practice, so patients in the clinic as well as in the operating room operating in both the ambulatory surgery center as well as in the main hospitals. So we take care of, you know, your typical um, chronic rhinosinusitis and outpatient procedures, but also some of the CSF leaks and tumors. So it's just very enriching. I'm very lucky. I get to do a little bit of everything.
2: Yeah, lots of variety. That's so awesome. Today we specifically want to kind of zero in and talk to you about allergic fungal rhinosinusitis. Um, So I guess let's just start out by, you know, defining terms.
1: Yeah, sure. So allergic fungal rhinosinusitis is basically a subtype of the bigger chronic rhinosinusitis uh, with nasal polyps. And so we have chronic rhinosinusitis with and without nasal polyps. And so when we start looking at the nasal polyp group, allergic fungal falls under that And the reason why it's been sort of carved out is because of some of the unique features of this disease, some of which includes sometimes such severe presentation that the sinus cavities are so expanded that you get these really impressive CT scans where the frontal sinus is expanded into the intracranial cavity, not necessarily invading it like you alluded to, but more just because it's been there for so long and expanded the sinus cavity outside of its normal dimensions. It can expand into the orbital area, and luckily oftentimes it's still preserved within the sinus cavity, but you get these really dramatic CT scans also on CT scans, you get a presence of this really thick. It's been described as peanut butter, you know, mucin, really sticky, thick mucin. And then these patients have a, an allergy sensitivity. So if you did skin testing or blood testing, they do have a elevated IgE level to the fungal, various different fungal antigens. And so, and the other characteristic is that when you look at the total IgE level, it's like out the roof, right? So you see elevated IgE levels in allergy patients, but maybe in the hundreds. In allergic fungal rhinosinusitis, it's in the thousands. So almost following into that category of hyper-IgE syndromes, right, So that we see in the thousands. Um, So it's a really unique phenotype and subtype of CRS with nasal polyps
0: when you diagnose it, can you pretty much diagnose it then on CT or are you then in your workup kind of checking off the, are we still doing the Benton-Kuhn criteria or yeah. what are, how do you actually diagnose it clinically? I mean, are you just kind of looking at the scan and then look in the nose, you see some peanut butter and you're like, oh, that's probably AFS or are there
1: certain things in
0: your checklist that you want
1: to make sure that you have? Yeah, great question. So actually, the Benton-Kuhn criteria has been a, a great criteria for us to make this diagnosis. Um, so one of those is, you know, the nasal polyps we talked about, the eosinophilic mucin CT changes. But it turns out that the more we are starting to talk as a community, a worldwide community, where we're starting to realize that there are several patients that you can check mark and meet the uh, Benton-Kuhn criteria, but it, it either has a different presentation and different geographic, locations or they're totally different things. And it's confusing because in the South where we live, you know, in the Southern regions, you get that classic allergic fungal, exactly what we talked about, this thick peanut buttery uh, mucin, the fungal allergies, the expanded CT scans. But then when I talk to my colleagues, let's say in in Canada, where they make the diagnosis of allergic fungal, they may have the fungal uh, specific IgE elevation, so a fungal allergy, but they don't get the same expanded uh, CT Scans They don't get the same really thick peanut butter, although they do get some sort of eosinophilic mucin. And so the question is whether or not these are the same diseases. And I think those of us in the South that see the classic ones, I, I would say that it's probably going to turn out to be different than what they see up north, which is more of an eosinophilic serous with nasal polyps. And I don't know if that's going to make any difference right now. So right now it's sort of just an academic discussion, whether or not those things are different. But down the road, as we start to really get down to the molecular, you know, pathophysiology, that may have some implications because the more targets we identify, like the more we really learn about this disease, maybe we turn out, it turns out that there's a specific defect, which I'm starting to discover that then could serve as a target for therapies. And so there, it will be critical to really make that distinction, kind of going away from what we're talking about, which is a phenotype, you know, clicking off some of these characteristics, to more of this endotype, where we're really starting to understand the molecular differences between one type of CRS with nasal polyps and another type of CRS with nasal polyps.
2: I, w- I wanted to ask about, do we do we know why there's that geographic difference and it, you know does it just have to do with certain um fungus being in certain places like in the south that that aren't up north or does it just kind of have to do with that part of the environment but then now i also want to make sure that we touch on endotypes and kind of
1: expand on that as a definition so i don't know what what makes sense to cover first Yeah, so great questions. So in terms of geographic distribution, we believe, so this was described many years ago by another fantastic rhinologist, woman rhinologist, Dr. B.J. Ferguson. And she was the lead author on this paper that talked about the geographic distribution of allergic fungal rhinosinusitis. And it turns out that you do get much higher level of prevalence of AFRS in the South. And I don't know if we know exactly why we do get this geographic distribution, but it sort of um, supports the, the concept that there is an environmental trigger to this disease process, right? That there must be an underlying uh, genetic defect, otherwise everyone in the South would get it. But there also must be a geographic, maybe the levels of fungus more than the actual presence of specific fungi, because a lot of these are um, very much prevalent everywhere, right? Staphoria similarly. So fungus, the the different species are actually quite prevalent in most places. It's just that in the south where it's hot and humid, the duration of the year where you get these high levels of fungus is gonna be longer than let's say in the south in the north where you have get these very distinct seasons. And so you get a really cold front. So it kills all these spores. While in Houston, we're happy if we get two weeks of where it drops into the 30s, right? Um, And probably similar to Dallas, although it it gets a little bit colder there. And so I think that's why we're seeing some of this distribution. And also you'll see the distribution closer to like in the U.S. around the Mississippi Basin. And so there it's, again, humid, more prevalence uh, and higher loads of fungus. So I think allergic fungal is unique in that it does really highlight this environmental component along with the probably genetic component of chronic rhinosinusitis, uh, more so than other endotypes.
0: And then just going back to the second part of Ash's question, um, in terms of terminology, nomenclature, are we still saying CRS with nasal polyps? Are we saying CRS with type 2 inflammation? How should we be teaching it to the trainees or discussing it with our colleagues? Is there a change in the way people are sort of
1: referring to this? So, Gopi, I think the reason why we are in that, like, how do we talk about this is exactly to your point is that we're making this transition now, right? So, I think that Still, most people refer to CRS with and without nasal polyps because clinically, that's a very easy thing to distinguish different types of chronic rhinosinusitis, and we just don't have an easy way going. Let's we're going to introduce a new concept now uh, and term uh, biomarker, right? We don't have an easy biomarker to link it to these different endotypes and so the difference between endotype and phenotype is phenotype you know we as clinicians can go in there look and say okay um, we see a polyp or okay we see mucin so things that we can see clinically the endotypes are more challenging because that's describing different molecular pathways that lead to the same phenotype. So, And the more we learn about this disease process, I think that that's where we're going to start seeing these different clear endotypes. Because even within that group that you sort of alluded to, that type 2, that pretty much covers like 80% of CRS with nasal polyps. And that's why I think we haven't really gone to, hey, CRS, type 2 because it sort of falls under the same umbrella. But I think as we're starting to really understand, like, you know, what causes aspirin-exasperated respiratory disease? Well, there is a defect in the arachidonic acid. So if we can find a clear biomarker, then we would be able to say this falls under AERD, aspirin-exasperated respiratory disease. And even with allergic fungal, we're talking about this interesting phenotypic distribution, but we don't have a clear marker yet to talk about, you know, what the defect. And so in my lab, we've been really looking at this classic allergic fungal rhinosinusitis group, collecting tissue from these patients, collecting blood from these patients, and starting to see actual differences. And so one of the differences that we have found in AFRS patients is that they seem to be deficient in making an antimicrobial peptide. And so now we're starting to dissect, like, what is the pathway or the cells that are missing that prevent these groups from not having enough antimicrobial peptide or antifungal peptide, which explains why they get all this fungus debris in their sinuses. And so once we identify that, and then we come up with a test that help clinicians to easily identify that, then that will allow us to say, this is an endotype of allergic fungal rhinosinusitis. And until we get to that point, I think we're going to still fall into those phenotypic descriptions with and without nasal polyps. So I guess to answer your question, ultimately, is we're still using the word CRS with and without nasal polyps, but now having the appreciation that with nasal polyps, most of these patients have that type 2 inflammatory disease. And so we're getting a little bit closer to endotyping these patients.
2: Thank you for clarifying that. I think it would be helpful to, you know, take a step back now and think about, you know, how these patients present. You know, what are they looking like when they walk into your clinic?
1: Yeah, so the whole spectrum. So what's interesting about allergic fungal is that they can present quite young. So our typical CRS with nasal polyps, I think, would present probably around 30s to 50 years of age. In allergic fungal, you should become more alert to a possible allergic fungal rhinosinusitis when you see a young person in their twenties. The youngest uh, person that I saw present with allergic fungal is age six. Very uncommon, but it can happen. But you know, it's not uncommon to see a late teenage years and early twenties, and so they they present with unilateral disease. So unlike another group of polyp patients in younger kids is cystic fibrosis, right? But cystic fibrosis, when they present, is often bilateral and ultimately will have other symptoms associated with that. And there, that's a, a different workup, right? So you'll want to look at, you know, possible cystic fibrosis disease and uh, looking for the gene uh, associated with CFTR, you know, the CFTR gene associated with cystic fibrosis. Well, in allergic fungal, the kids can present with bilateral disease, but more often can present with unilateral disease. So going back there, generally younger, often very limited symptoms like lower symptom burden than our other CRS with nasal polyp patients, which makes me think that these kids, because they present so much younger, they just think it's part of their life, right? So they're just so used to their symptoms. And so it also highlights the chronicity of this disease. To sort of relate to this, when you and I jump into a pool You notice the symptoms right away and you're freezing, but after a while, you sort of just get used to it. And I think that that's what happens with patients who have these chronic diseases. Maybe initially they may have noticed it, and if they present really young, they sort of may not mention it to their parents or may not think anything of it, and then they just sort of get used to these symptoms. So some of these patients I just remember because they're so shocking, polyps are coming out of the nose boogers and mucin, you know, all this really thick, gross stuff coming out of their nose. They'll tell you that they blow it out, but they will say, I've got a little bit of a headache. And then you get a CAT scan. And as I sort of alluded to, right, these really expanded sinuses, almost barely see the bone that separates the sinus from the orbit and the brain. And you see on a, let's say, the um, tissue window, this heterogeneic signal in your CT scan really alluding to this really thick peanut buttery stuff that's inside their sinuses. And you look at the patient and they're like, yeah, I've got a little bit of a headache and a stuffy nose. And you're like, oh my goodness. So yeah, so very low symptom burden, polyps that can sometimes present on both sides or just on one side. So those are some of the highlights from that disease presentation.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. My bulk of my kids were probably between 12 to 16 when they would present. And usually they came in and, you know, nobody's ever asked them if they could smell. And they, they'll tell you, oh, I haven't smelled in years. And the biggest one was, and they may or may not have even noticed it. And they're there with uh, family is the proptosis or just some sort of asymmetry. There's always, not always, I'd say maybe 50%. And those were probably my like 14-year-old adolescent mostly males, you know, with some sort of proptosis, although every once in a while I'd see it. Youngest, mine, I think, was six. And that was a tough one because the workup was so indolent. Um, You don't expect AFS. Their steroid response was a little bit, you know, more of where all of a sudden it was gone. They didn't have as much time to maybe develop all that peanut butter mucin, you know, and you're working them up for CF, PCD. You know, they kind of have this throat clearing, maybe some cough. The younger they are, it can be a vaguer Presentation because there's a lot more to kind of think about, but I, I agree that it, the symptoms are mild and finally they just can't breathe or their mouth breathing or you know and it's been going on for a long time and by the time they come up to you now every once in a while and this is maybe uh, twice I think in our children's ED we've had um, AFS present with a history of vision loss and the vision loss again because the chronicity of it it's been gone for weeks and that's heartbreaking because. There's not too much, once they have like a afferent pupillary defect or something, you know what I mean? Where they're barely seeing, and it's been going on for weeks, and we've had two cases like that, and that's very difficult. You do help them breathe better, but
1: that vision's not coming back once it's been that that long. Yeah, luckily those don't happen too often, right, Gopi? I mean, I think I've only had in my career one child that completely lost their vision. But luckily, they it doesn't happen in that scenario so often. And more often, it's this very impressive CT scan where you're thinking that, oh, my goodness, they are going to lose their vision or how can they see? And you're able to get in there or there's got to be a CSF leak when you get in. And you don't worry. And then you go in and there's no issues at all. But you're prepared for everything, right? You're prepared for seeing the optic nerve or you're prepared for a blood bath. You're prepared for brain fluid repair where you hope you can reach it with your instruments because the sinuses are so expanded that the typical, you know, instruments won't reach in that area. And, you know, knock on wood, that doesn't happen too often. But yeah, that's unlike other CRS with nasal polyp patients. Those kind of complications can happen more often, I think, uh, than your other CRS with nasal polyps.
0: So that brings me to the question of um, imaging. Is there ever a role for uh, CT with contrast or an MRI? Now, you know, we talk about these really impressive CAT scans. And like you said, if it's that anterior cranial fossa super pushed up or super thinned out and whatnot, MRI, though, like... You tell me, I, you know, because I always, like, go back and forth. I'm like, when I go in, if I think, it, you know, it's probably going to be all fine. But but then I'm like, ah, oh, do I need to be getting it? And I feel like I should know, but I don't.
1: I think when I was earlier in my career, I would get the MRIs. But after um, the experience with it, that more often than not it's not an issue. Um, I don't normally get an MRI. It's because it's so much more difficult to get the MRI. And if I'm going to get the MRI, it's usually with contrast. And so again, it's just so much more challenging to get the MRI. And luckily, in a majority of cases, you won't have that concern about uh, the separation. Now, I would say if you don't see a lot of allergic fungal or you don't that opportunity where you see them, I would tell you to get the MRI, at least from time to time, just because it's quite impressive seeing the drop signal on the MRI, some of these characteristics, and just to sort of give you comfort going forward to not have to get the MRI, just, you know, to be able to see that. But yeah, I I don't get it now on a regular basis unless there's something in their history i.e. vision loss or a meningitis, which, thank God, you know, it doesn't happen very often. If there's some other complications such as that, then I'll get the MRI. Or if I, because of some other issue, I am concerned about a, a prolapse of or a loss of the integrity of the skull base or the orbit, then I may get the MRI. But most of the time, I don't.
0: I agree with that. I think unless there's like a cranial nerve, something on my physical exam, which I've seen with expansion or I'm not 100% sure clinically that this is what I'm dealing with, that I may get it. Um, but I have seen in the ER, especially that sometimes, again, the kids will present uh, with AFRS and they come to the ER because of proptosis or something. All of a sudden, they come to the ER and they get the scan. Everybody's freaking out. They get an MRI. It gets even more confusing because of the drop signal. And then the patient's admitted because the read um, on the scan is, you know, fungal sinusitis in an otherwise healthy kid, but the patient's admitted and, you know, there's bells and whistles for, quote, IFS, invasive fungal or something else going on. And so I think that role of imaging
2: can be very tricky. Um, the bone can get so thin on the C T scan that you you know, you're looking at it and you're like, is there bone there? Am I gonna get in there? And there's not gonna be any bone, you know, but there there always is, or in in my experience, you know, it's it's just been pushed and it's just gotten so thin that you're looking at the C T and you're really worried that you're going to, you know, see, you know, an actual defect and and usually there's not. And then and then the other thing that stands out is the couple of patients from residency who presented and, you know, family members would show a picture of them and be like, they look like a different person now because their actual, you know, craniofacial skeleton has expanded as well. And so, you know, not common, but those are the ones that kind of stick out, you know, those extreme cases that have been going on for a long time and they finally present.
1: Yeah. And it's, I think it's those extreme patients that are the most challenging to clear of allergic fungal. Luckily, you know, is the kids often or in my experience more often than the older ones present with unilateral disease and if you can get that unilateral disease and you can do a really good job of clearing all the mucin, then those patients do really well. but it's those the ones that you know I remember over the years, the really expanded sinuses, the crazy CT scans, those, you know, are really, really difficult because it is so challenging to get all that mucin out because it's, you know, these unusual crevices, these areas where our instruments are not intended to get to at that depth. And I think that those end up, and because of maybe how long it's been going on, those are really sometimes the most challenging. There's this one gentleman I'm thinking of, and also, you know, some social determinants of health. He's unable to do some of the things we need him to do and he's been quite challenging but his, you know his vision is totally off um he's got a misalignment of his orbit you know his eyes so he sees double vision so now he just relies on one um but he has to rely on the metro lift to get him to the clinic and um it's hard for him to do saline irrigations on a regular basis so we end up sticking with oral steroids which is just horrible and and so now he's gained a ton of weight and Unfortunately, because of his social situation, his diet is not so good. So it's more likely that he gains the weight. Now you've got other medical complications. So these patients can be very challenging. And there's actually a great paper out of the MUSC group or Emory group. I can't remember which one, but they were talking about initially when there was less known about it, about how at least in their population, it was generally the uh, lower income patient population that was getting allergic fungal. And so that makes it another level of challenge, you know, when you're dealing with that aspect on top of their disease process.
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, other than imaging, do you get any, um, any other, you know, testing? Do you, um, do you get labs where you're checking IgE levels? Do you, you know, always culture the peanut butter, thick eosinophilic mucin? Um, what else is part of the workup?
1: Yeah, so at least in the South, and and you probably see this, I don't do as much imaging, I mean, not much workup anymore because it's such a classic presentation. But when I was starting out and trying to really understand this disease, I uh, would get eosinophil levels, uh, CBC with diff, and I still will get those in my fungal Uh, panel. So I want to get a total IgE level. Um, I do want to confirm that there's fungal hypersensitivity and oftentimes it it will be, especially here where it's much more classic presentation. So it's almost so obvious, Um, but we do want to get that just to confirm it. And then a CBC with Diff, however, these patients typically their serum eosinophil levels is normal. And so that's another thing that we've been really investigating and try to understand uh, that when you compare patients with allergic fungal to patients with CRS with nasal polyps that don't have allergic fungal. Number one, they typically have normal serum eosinophil levels versus CRS with nasal polyps. Often they will have elevated serum eosinophil levels. And then number two, their asthma prevalence is very different. So in allergic fungal rhinosinusitis, we did both a retrospective study as well as a prospective study where we had those patients do spirometry to confirm or determine their asthma uh, status. And it turns out that allergic fungal rhinosinusitis patients, the prevalence of asthma is higher than the general population, which is about like 8%. But it's not as high as that found in CRS with nasal polyps, which is somewhere between sixty to eighty percent. So. Allergic fungal falls, the prevalence of asthma is, is similar to CRS without nasal polyps, which is about 15 to 20%. So it's a little bit higher, and it kind of, you know, makes sense with the uh, the unified airway. So you get a higher prevalence, but it's not as high as what we see in our other eosinophilic CRS with nasal polyp patients, um, which is, you know, somewhere between 60 to 80%. So we're trying to understand that. And I think that's going to end up linking to this whole, you know, what is the molecular defect in this patient population that leads to AFS when you're encountered with all this fungal load? In
0: in my workup, I tend to, I'll get RAST. A lot of times they've already come in. So some of the patients will have already come in with allergy testing, whether it's skin um, or RAST. Sometimes on the way out, um, I'll just have them get a RAST panel But I don't always know exactly what I'm looking for. I just want to have that sort of type 1 hypersensitivity and make sure there is some sort of uh, mold or fungus that they're allergic to. But I think I need to be a little bit more thoughtful about, you know, maybe incorporating. Like I I never usually check eosinophil levels or IgE levels um,
1: routinely. Yeah. As I mentioned, the serum eosinophil levels is not as helpful, but it's just interesting to me. And so I just want to kind of, again, help differentiate between uh, serous with nasal polyps and an allergic fungal. It just helps me sort of just one additional data point, especially, you know, in the younger patients, it's much more classic, right? But like, there are some patients that present in their late 20s, um, and so there's that overlap potentially with the phenotypic presentation with CRS, with nasal pulp. So some of these lab values help with that. Also with the total serum IgE levels, it sort of helps me put them on the spectrum of that AFRS, right? So if they're really in the thousands, it makes me feel much more confident that this is allergic fungal because there's going to be a lot of patients, even with CRS, with nasal polyps that just have fungal hypersensitivity, but it's not part of their, it's not allergic fungal. And it's those patients that have really elevated total IgE levels, along with these other characteristics that we talk about that make you lean more towards allergic fungal. So there's never one lab that, you know, again, if we did, it would be an endotype and a biomarker, right? But we don't have that one lab. So these are data points that help to sort of make the argument about whether or not this is your allergic fungal versus an eosinophilic CRS with nasal polyps. And Also, it may be down the road when you start thinking about if you get this patient who you do have a difficult time managing uh, for whatever reason. Now we do have these other treatment options like biologics that some of these markers can be helpful when you're starting to think about different biologics that are available on the market. Again, luckily, these patients, most of them do great with a good surgery up front. And so I think that if you are lucky enough to catch someone with the initial presentation of allergic fungal, I would say that first surgery is really critical. So if you are not set up to have the instruments, because there are some special instruments, right, some special frontal instruments, some of these and more expanded um, sinus instruments, I would say it's probably better for you to refer it on to a group that um, may just do more sinus surgery than you may. And it's not because you're necessarily going to be unable to do it. It's just that you haven't invested in the instruments to help you get all that mucin. In my experience, that first shot, that first surgery is so critical because once they get down the road where they have a recurrence almost within a month after that initial surgery, it becomes way more challenging to get them under control. Um, luckily, those biologics aren't that critical uh, for these patients, but in those you know, rare situations where they are really refractory and very difficult, and it may be because they've got a couple of other things going on, then you may want to be thinking about these other, luckily, other treatment options that have come into the market, right? So these different delivery mechanisms for steroids, um, different steroids that are available because once upon a time, really, we just relied on oral steroids. And now we're becoming much more uh, sensitive to some of the long term complications associated with the high doses of oral steroids we used to give. But, you know, if you go back and look at some of the Benton Kuhn papers, we were keeping patients on these steroids like 30, 40 milligrams a day for months at a time. Um, and we don't do that anymore. At least, I mean, I would think that Ash or no. w, do you? Do no. those I I know I don't. What
0: what is your steroid? Like so you have a patient that comes in, do you do a trial of steroids for 10, 12 days, 14 days, get imaging? What is the role of oral steroids in your practice?
1: Yeah, so when a patient walks into my clinic and maybe they came in with a CT scan, so it's pretty clear that they have allergic fungal because we are interested in understanding the pathophysiology of this disease, I don't put them on oral steroids up front. But if I was outside of the academic realm, I would tell you that this patient's going to need surgery and they're not going to respond with oral steroids alone. And given the fact that um, there are so much complications associated with steroids and that it would be beneficial for you to have perioperative steroids going into the surgery, I would tell you, Think about the surgery date. Talk to your patients that, listen, you're going to need surgery. This is probably the first-line treatment. But save the oral steroids for that perioperative stage. So I would tell you 40 milligrams um, at least, probably 40 milligrams. You know, obviously, if it's a child, that's going to be different. But for your adult-sized uh, patient, 40 milligrams probably three days beforehand. You don't want to do do it too much because then now um, it may change you know, the presentation of your surgery. So just enough to get the inflammation under control so that you're not having to deal with a lot of bleeding at the time of surgery um, makes it more likely that you're going to be able to get a good clean out of the patient's sinuses. And then around day three or four of that oral steroid, do your surgery, um, make sure you do a really nice job, take the time. You know, some of these patients may take three or four hours to do. I remember when I was interviewing at the Cleveland Clinic, and I just happened to be sitting in on a case with allergic fungal. And this was a a person who had come from the south and just relocated to Cleveland. And the uh, case that I was observing was seven hours um, just to get everything out. So, you know, luckily, most of them don't go that long. But be prepared that some of this thick mucin, especially in areas that are really difficult to get to, may take an hour or two to just get But it's really important to, you know, when you have that opportunity, it's that first surgery, you need to take the time. Otherwise, you're dooming this patient potentially to a lot of different surgeries down the road, a challenge, and not having the opportunity to have a situation where they had the one surgery, that's all they need, and they may need steroid saline irrigations. And then that's it for the rest of their their disease lifespan.
2: And that's 40 milligrams of prednisone, I assume?
1: That's what I do. Yeah, 40 milligrams of Pregnizone, uh, three to four days before surgery, and then you do your surgery. And then after that, um, so for me, I don't do that perioperative steroid. However, after surgery, I will do uh, that steroid, but I don't do it as high as I used to. I'll do more of a 30 milligrams, three days, 20 milligrams for three days, 10 milligrams for three days. If it was really, really bad, maybe I might do a 40 milligram and a little bit longer, three or four days. So some of that is just clinical, like how long I want to expose them to steroids. And then after that, so I'll see them at that first week and decide how they're doing and then see if we can start then adding on the topical steroids, in terms of, you know, as I sort of alluded to over the years, we've really been lucky in rhinology that there's been a huge interest in industry for wanting to develop new, you know, therapeutics for us. And so once upon a time, all we had was steroids and steroid sprays and saline irrigations. And over the last, I would say, you know, 10 years, we now have. Uh, devices that allow us to put steroids locally into the tissue, whether it's at the time of surgery or after surgery. We have different delivery mechanisms for steroids. Um, we have different now biologics. And so it does increase our ability to provide these anti-inflammatory medications into our patients. But it does make a little bit more challenging for us because now we have more options. Like, what is the best thing to do for our patients? So for allergic fungal patients, as well as a lot of my eosinophilic patients, I will put in, at the time of surgery, a device that uh, releases steroids locally because we know that the surgery in of itself causes a lot of inflammation. So I like the idea of of adding uh, steroids locally there but for allergic fungal, I will still add on the oral steroids because it's probably not enough. But I taper them off pretty quickly, as I sort of alluded to. I don't do the month-long steroids. And so that has worked out really well. And some of these steroid delivery devices have a an open matrix. So that would be a concern for me, right, if I went through and spent all this time opening up the sinus cavity and then putting in a something that may block off the sinus cavity. So I like the fact that these... Uh, Various different delivery systems have an open matrix, so I feel comfortable putting it in there, so that way it helps handle the inflammation that I may have caused uh, without blocking um, some of the mucin and allowing the patients to start irrigating immediately after surgery. Is that something like a Propel stint? That's the primary one, right? But um, the the principle is that you're delivering steroids locally. And I've had the opportunity to work with various different companies. So we may be seeing other uh, delivery mechanisms down the road. Again, I think we're in a really interesting time. There's a lot more treatment options coming in, and there's a lot more funding or interest in Uh, various different industry partners wanting to help us deliver different treatment options for our patients. Yeah, so I think that the one that you named is one of them, but I I know that there are others that are are looking to enter the market as well. Do you let those stay in
0: until they're gone on their own, or do you end up taking them out if there's still like a little uh, matrix left at, you know, six weeks, four weeks...
1: Yeah. So if you're putting up in the frontal, because they don't get as much, um, I think, air turbulence, they don't crust as much, at least in my experience. So they don't crust as much if they're in the frontals. And so, and in that situation, so challenging to try to get it all out that I don't worry about it because it is intended to be a, a biodegradable and it should just dissolve on its own with the saline irrigation. So I don't put too much uh, effort into trying to get it out in the frontals unless I see that there's a lot of crusting, which is unusual in terms of uh, those that are placed in the sign, the ethmoid cavities, um, they tend to crust quite a bit. And in that situation, I will remove them at around two weeks um, because the data has shown that the current ones that are on the market release most of their steroids after two weeks. And at two weeks, between two weeks and three weeks, it's before they started degrading so much where you're having to pick out these little toothpick-like, you know, matrix, you know, fragments. And so you're able to get it mostly all on block, so to say, with all their crusting. And you're not losing the benefits of the, the matrix, but not driving yourself crazy trying to pick all of that stuff out.
0: Is there a max number that you'll put in one side? Yeah, I usually only use one. Okay. I was just question, just because sometimes the frontals, you know, everything's so expanded. There's a lot of space afterwards and maybe you have like a posterior wand and maybe one more anterior. I, I don't know, I'm just asking. I don't use them very often, but
1: yeah, so I usually just use one. um, but that being said, I guess if you've got a patient that where you're really expanded out and you're concerned, it might be maybe justified to putting more than that. But I usually use one, and I don't know if there's any great data for that. You know, you will be irrigating, and there is cilia and there they've shown there is a little bit more wide distribution of the steroid, not just where the matrix hits the the mucosa where you're going to have steroids. So, In that situation, I don't really see the justification for the expense of putting more than that in a sinus cavity. And then I've got other options after surgery for adding in my anti-inflammatory medications, right? The budesonide irrigations or fluticasone through different delivery mechanisms. I want to back up
2: and talk a little bit more about kind of the specifics of surgery. And you mentioned, you know, one big thing is just having the right tools at your disposal to be able to kind of reach and get into all these nooks and crannies where this thick peanut butter mucin is packed in there. Can we unpack that a little bit more?
1: Sure. So I think the the one that's most challenging on a normal basis, right? I mean, yes, there's these patients that have these crazy expanded frontals that expand posteriorly and intracranial cavity area, but not actually in the cavity itself. But the most common one that's really frustrating to deal with is the maxillary sinus. And most patients, it it is involved. And so um, there are different tricks that I've learned over the years that I've used. So going in and then just the normal suctioning. But then, you know, when you start getting into areas where it's really low on the floor and their sinus cavity is significantly lower than even the nasal floor. But oftentimes I don't necessarily have to do, let's say, a mega entrostomy or, you know, do anything like that because the polyps and the mucin has already expanded the opening of the maxillary sinus so much. But still, sometimes in those areas lower and anterior, it's really challenging to get all that mucin out. So So the Maxillary U-Wiser has this curve and it has a kind of a Blakesley grasping handle at the end. So that works really well in sort of using that to sort of mix the mucin around to try to dislodge it. I also will use uh, various different curettes um like a 90 degree curette sometimes can help me reach into those areas so those instruments are designed for the frontal but because of the curvature of the instruments allows me to get to some of the anterior some of the lateral aspects of the area it is really important for you to take advantage of your different angled scope so you can see in those areas right so i will go into my even the 70 degree scope just to get a good look to make sure i haven't missed anything I use uh, warm saline on syringes, so after I think I've gotten everything out, I'll irrigate with uh, lots of saline and sometimes the warm saline is helpful to sort of help dislodge it. There are uh, more devices that will allow you to hide, basically power wash all of your sinuses. So I'll use that a hydro debreeder, right? So the poor man's way is to do syringes and uh, irrigate it. And those are very effective too. But maybe even after you feel like you've gotten a, a good clean out, I'll go and use the hydro debrider. It's a kind of an instrument that also allows you to curve the end in different angles and then you attach like a liter of saline and it allows you to just power wash. It looks like literally a power washer and you just power wash all your sinuses at the end of the case. So I'll do that at the end of the case. Other things at the maxillary sinus, if I feel like there's some areas where the mucin won't come out, I'll use, I'll wick it out. I'll use like afrin-soaked cotinoids and I'll stuff that maxillary sinus with a ton of cottonoids, And then sometimes that will wick out some of the uh, mucin that's trapped in there. And then again, other frontal instruments can be helpful. So there's a whole bunch of uh, non-biting giraffes that you can try just to, again, just to get at those angles, just to get everything out. But that can be the most challenging That area. can sometimes, like you said, be 30 to 45 minutes
0: extra per sinus. I mean, there's a reason that, you know, these cases, the one that you described was seven hours. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's just, i I tend to use the saline on the syringe and the different angled sections to kind of irrigate that thick peanut butter. Because as we know... You can't grab it, right? It's just going to bite through. You can't suction it. Like, it's not going to come out. It's always going to beat you. So you have to make the openings really big. And then I'll try to find a plane between the sinus wall and the outer surface of the peanut butter or whatever fungal ball unit, and then just try to kind of pump it. I was going to ask you, in terms of navigation, do you always use uh, navigation for your surgery as well as do you like navigating instruments
1: like navigating microdebriders and those kinds of tools as well? Yes. So for allergic fungal, well, number one, we're at an academic center. So I, I think we probably tend to use the navigation probably more frequently than in private practice. Um, so I don't think that You have to use the navigation for all of your cases. But allergic fungal is one of those that I use it, even if I wasn't teaching, more often than not, just because of some of those characteristics we talked about, right? Some of the areas where the skull base can be really thinned out, um, the unusual anatomy caused by the expansion of the sinus cavities. And so I will more often use navigation. I don't like the microdebreeders so much. In terms of all of my dissections, and I think that's just the way I trained, right? So I trained more with the sharp instruments and sharp dissection, and using my microdebrider more for the soft tissue. Um, that being said, I think that there's definitely uh, a role for using a microdebrider, and it can be a lot quicker. It's just that you know I I enjoy the dissecting <laughs> aspect of it, but in allergic fungal, sometimes that's like not even a possibility, and there the microdebrider is more helpful because all those partitions are gone. And so all you're dealing with are polyps anyway. So there's nothing for me to sharply dissect. So yes, in that situation, a debreeder. But I don't like relying on, and I haven't used, to be fair, full disclosure, I haven't used a navigation debreeder just because in my mind, I don't want to be navigating while I'm debreeding. I'd rather be like, if I'm concerned, I should use a different instrument to tell me that the skull base rather than to have my microdebreeder up against the skull base and, you know, and using that as as my reliance on whether or not I should continue debreeding. But that's probably just uh, a philosophy more than anything.
0: I like it when I'm with a trainee. It makes me feel better, maybe, when I'm watching them use a guided one. That being said, I find that I use them less and less, even with trainees as time goes on, just because you're right. I think you're looking at the endoscopic screen. And so image guidance is helpful, but I I don't want to be looking at that the whole time. You know, and I I also don't want the trainee necessarily to get dependent on that either. But I kind of go back and forth on it, I guess.
2: Do you have any preference or comments on different types of um, navigation? You know, we, I'm trying to think of the types that we have at our hospital. We have do we have Brain Lab, I believe, is one of ours and we
0: We uh, had Medtronic in the past and now we have Stryker. Uh, one of our other hospitals in Plano has the clearance system. So there's there's so many different systems out there.
2: Yeah, there's so many different ones. Does it does it matter?
1: I don't think it matters. Um, I think it's whatever you're comfortable with. Um, We have been really lucky, and we also, similar to you guys, have a whole spectrum of different navigations at different locations. So we have the Medtronic. We also have the different versions of the Medtronic, right? So ones where um, you can uh, fuse it with the neurosurgeons because in our pituitaries we uh, will use that Medtronic uh, version. Um, So we have several different Medtronics, and then we also have the Stryker. System. We also have the Eclairant system. We also once upon a time had the Fiagon system. So we've been really lucky to be able to play with them, and I find it really helpful because each of these have a little bit, slightly different navigation, registration, different features. So I think the Eclairant has this auto-segmentation feature. The striker system has the the rings and being able to, you know, for your trainees and even for yourself to think up through the frontal sinus pathway and even putting that on and developing a pathway to go to various different areas and then utilizing um, the onlay of these rings and the pathway onto your nasal endoscopy uh, view guide you up into the various different areas you're going to. And so all of these systems are being advanced and upgraded as we speak almost every day. There's a lot of research into these navigation systems, and a lot of them overlap in terms of these features. Those I just highlighted a couple of them. Um, And obviously, the Medtronic system is a tried and true, and so many of our trainees are very comfortable with it. I think it's really about your comfort level, what makes you you know, be able to use it, but not relying on it and still being dependent, knowing your anatomy, but also being able to utilize this navigation to get to those areas, right, to really do that good job, especially with allergic fungal, as we alluded to, where the anatomy can be quite distorted and you really want to make sure you do a good job. That navigation system can make you feel more comfortable to get into those last crevices, to get into that, you know, making sure that you do see that most anterior, inferior portion of the maxillary sinus and you cleared that out. Otherwise, you know, within a month, they're going to come back in the maxillary sinus and you're going to be like wondering why. And in reality, it's just you never got to it.
0: And talking about the sinus surgery and doing that really good job, if the patient just has like frontal and anterior ethmoid disease on your primary surgery, so the first one they've ever had, are you also opening up, for example, the
1: sphenoids as well, like, quote, the full house fests? Yeah, I haven't had the privilege of just having just one, you know, that limited type of allergic phone. And I think it's because we're in an academic center, right? But I think, I'm, you know, we're actually at the academy meeting coming up. I'm involved in the program committee. We have a great debate that is scheduled where they're going to be talking about this whole, you know, do you do a more focused surgery or the, you know, full fest if you have disease on one side? Do you go ahead and, you know, do you do one sinus past the disease, or do you just focus on the disease? So actually, Dr. Troy Woodward is going to be debating Dr. Deviani Lal at one of the great debates for the academy meeting in Philadelphia. So to address that very point, uh, for me, I'm probably more in the camp of, especially if it's on that one side, I'll go ahead and open all of them. But that's another key point. If they have unilateral presentation and they have a deviated septum, which they will, I will not try to fix that deviated septum because I don't want to instrument the other side. Now, does it necessarily protect them? Not necessarily. I have had patients where they had unilateral presentation and then ultimately developed allergic fungal on the other side. But I have had enough where they present with unilateral disease and it doesn't go over to the other side. And so I don't want to be the one that adds a big load of fungus onto the other side where they then develop allergic fungal on that side. So to answer your question, I will do the full FES on the one side if they have allergic fungal, even if it's limited to, let's say, the ethmoid and the frontal, um, but I won't go beyond to an an unaffected sinus side.
0: I kind of, I have that debate in my head and I think for me it's age, right? So for like 14 and up, I will usually go ahead and do everything on that side. But when they're younger, 10, 12, right, that, that six-year-old is going to be rare. But the 10, 12, it was probably about a third of my kids with AFS. And so I always kind of went back and forth on it. Like, you know, because we're going to be back. We know that this isn't going to be their first surgery. I feel like in kids, it tends to come back fast, um, depending on how compliant they are with their rinses. Uh, meaning sometimes within one to two years, we might be back in the OR. And so is it because I didn't do the full fast to begin with? Is it because they're younger and have the, quote, more robust immune systems? Or is it because they're not rinsing? I'm not sure. I do find that as they get a little bit older and once they understand their process, they get it. They know when they rinse, they feel better. They know when they don't rinse, it comes back. We're on a much better pattern and they have a longer time between recurrence. And I find that also the same question I have in my CF kids, PCD kids. I, I don't know, so I kind of go back and forth on it.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great point, and you know, it's it's just that that age group is so difficult because there's so many other reasons why they would recur, right? To your point, right? They're teenagers, right? And so do, they're they're not going to be that interested in taking care of health diseases. I mean. They barely bathe <laughs> yeah. on a regular basis. At least my guys, right? With my soap. kids too. You know, I have to remind <laughs> my <me>. kids too. <laughs> well, you just wait until the thirteen year old. I'm like, Lucas. I know you took a bath, but you have to use soap, okay? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> and you're like a teenage boy, and so yeah. you're you're changing, and so so mm-hmm. I think it's hard because that disease process does affect the you know younger population, and sometimes. It, not one gender is worse than the other, but they've got other priorities in their life, right? They're thinking about college or thinking about other things. And so it's hard for them uh, to be thinking about this. So I don't know if their recurrence is because of their age and just age by itself. And if they did everything, they wouldn't recur. Or is it because of their disease process or their compliance on it? So I think that's an actually a great research project that we should look into and think about, like, what is it that's giving them the the recurrence, the high recurrence?
2: Yeah. So just kind of rounding out the the surgical discussion, what else do we need to know about, you know, that surgery? Are you sending tissue for path? Are you always culturing the peanut butter? Anything else, you know, any other pearls from the operating room?
1: Yeah, so I send tissue more for my research aspect, but I send it just because our pathologists want to, but just to confirm the eosinophils in the tissue. But it's not so; it doesn't play into a lot of my decision making. If I'm pretty confident that it's allergic fungal, I don't send the mucin anymore. Once upon a time, I I would send it just for you know the schrader laden crystals showing uh, the presence of fungus. But now that there's papers that show that you can find fungus if you just looked for it in everyone, right? So if you use reducing agents that sort of break up the mucin, you can find fungus in 100% of patients as well as 100% of healthy control patients. So that whole process is sort of pointless. And so that doesn't really play into the diagnosis so much more than, you know, let's say if you saw the fungal debris by itself, that characteristic is enough. Um, But I guess in those patients where it's not so clear, I would send the mucin and maybe have them look, but I don't do that so much anymore. Do you send any cultures? No. Uh, do you have
0: antibiotics, orals, or topicals ever? Is there ever a role for that?
1: After surgery, because of those steroid uh devices, they do crust. And so it makes me think of staff, And so I will put them on a, a post-operative uh 10-day course of duraceF, 500 milligrams BID for 10 days, just to kind of protect them from the crusting that happens on the implants. But if I don't use those implants, I don't use antibiotics anymore.
0: And do you ever do like the ointment in the rinses, like mupirocin or Bactroban? any role for that kind of stuff?
1: I guess it just depends on how, how much mucin I'm seeing. Once upon a time, I used to, as they were transitioning off the oral steroids to the budesonide topical steroids, I would put in uh, the mupirocin because there was a lot of data that suggested that staph and fungus uh, go together. So I will. It, more likely in my AFS patients, instead of just transitioning them to just budesonide saline, I'll transition them to budesonide bupuricine saline irrigations and do that for a couple of months and then start bringing them down to something more uh, simple to try to keep their regimen as easy as possible. Because again, we're dealing with a young population. So the, the simplest what we can make it for them, the more likely they're going to do it. How do you prescribe your
2: upiracin and budesonide um, irrigations? Like, how do you tell them as far as, you know, how do you get the ointment to dissolve and, and how much are you putting in there? And are you just doing the pulmocort respules or, you know, can you explain that
1: part? For the budesonide, I, I use the pulmocort respules So it's two milligrams in two cc's, I believe is my dosing. I'll have to go back in because now I'm confused because they've been having to change it. But ultimately, it's one respule. In uh, one bottle of 240 cc, so one in one bottle for my budesonide. Half the bottle on one side, half the bottle on the other, and ideally twice a day. And then um, for my mepiracin, if you're lucky enough to find a compounding pharmacy, uh, we usually will try to do 200 milligrams of mepiracin powder that dissolves into the saline. But oftentimes, because it's off-label use, and so make sure you know patients know it is off-label use. Um, sometimes we get pushback from the insurance. So then we are able to find, sometimes uh, have them cover 20 milligrams of me Pearson powder because it does dissolve a lot easier. Otherwise, we are stuck with the Bactraban ointment and one tube in the ointment and just warming it up slightly and mixing it. Obviously, it can't be too hot, you know, otherwise you can't get it. So I have them warm it up slightly, try to get as much in, and then once it's at room temperature to irrigate their nose. But in that situation, I don't know if it's more for me or for them that (laughs) it's
0: really working. My ointment recipe is like, okay, put a dime size amount. It's an an approximate for sure. And I think that making it uh, as easy as possible, because I I think at the end of the day, it's consistency. So at first I'd say try to, you know— Maybe put your head back on the couch and drop the budesonite in directly or rinse out your nose with half the bottle with regular and then put the ampoule in and then rinse the rest out, you know, so, that, so it's more concentrated. But now I'm just like, you know what, put it all in there and just make sure you do it and do it like homework. So you do it Monday to Friday and if you take the weekends off, that's fine. But that over four weeks will be better than, you know, <laughs> doing it all at once in four days. So yeah, it's, I, I agree. I'm like the worst in terms of flossing and that kind of stuff. My flossing is their rinsing. We have to sit down and we have to talk about my dental care and their sinus <laughs> care so that we, I mean, are on the same page be- because it is something every day, right? So, but anyways, yeah, sorry, tangent. <laughs> yeah, I like that, Gopi. Oh gosh. One last question about antibiotics. Are you doing ever three to six weeks of an anti-staph oral antibiotic? Is that in vogue, out of vogue, nobody ever did it and I made it up. Is that still happening?
1: I think that's when like things fail. I wouldn't say that that's the first line, but for allergic fungal, I haven't used it. So I think you're alluding to like doxycycline or um, some of the um, macrolides. People talk about macrolides. So the macrolide, um, where it's a longer course, uh, that's more probably for your CRS without nasal polyps. That people describe that population that it may be may play a role. And then when other things fail, um, people will use the doxycycline for your CRS with nasal polyps. But the data is not very good. That's where we're trying to explore options that, you know, our typical go-to treatment options don't work. But I don't think the data is very good. And I think that that's why when you go to guidelines, all of those things are sort of like options and weak data.
2: And for the patients um, doing their budesonide rinses, is that forever? Is that patient dependent on how they're looking when you see them? You know, how do things um, usually happen post-op? You know, what's
1: the, the rest of the story after surgery? <laughs> yeah. So I think that with their their life, with me, it's forever, right? Ideally, I'd like to get them to a saline spray and a nasal steroid spray. But I'm not naive to realize that most patients, after probably around 10 years, they sort of start tapering off. And maybe they'll come see you once a year, and then they'll tell you, Doc, I have to be honest, I use it like a couple times a week, and every once in a while I may use a steroid spray, whatever. And then you look in their nose, and then you have to decide, and you tell them, give them the feedback, Hey, this has worked, and obviously this has worked for you, so do what you, whatever you're doing because it's working. But I, we don't have that great registry like long term, because honestly, patients either move after a certain number of years, or they stop seeing you. And so I don't know all the lifespan of an AFS. I assume that the fact that I lose so many as they get older, I assume that that's because they've gotten better. But I don't know, you know, maybe they're just moving to a different, different city after they got their job because they've graduated from college, right? So but I don't see that many older AFS patients that tell me they had surgery coming from, let's say, you know, somewhere else. And so I'm assuming that at some point in time, their immune system has sort of changed and it's no longer that big of issue, or that these patients are amazingly compliant and using their saline sprays and and saline steroid sprays their whole life and they don't come back. But I think it's probably the latter. So something happens and maybe they become less robust, as Gopi, I think you were alluding to, right? When they're young and their immune system is so revved up, but then maybe as they get older, our immune system changes and it becomes less of an issue. So
0: kind of going to that point, what's your surveillance like? You know, what's your post-op like that first year? But what's it at, you know, two, three years? Like we're not quite turned the corner, but they need to come see you.
1: Yeah, probably once a year. Once they're kind of stable and I've got them on saline irrigations and a nasal steroid spray, I tell them once a year, but then I honestly tell them, I'm like, listen, it's more probably a social visit for me than it is for you, but I would love to see you once a year just to make sure you're still in the right path. And um, some of them will take me up on the offer and and some of them, they sort of, after a couple of years of just once a year, stop coming or they've moved on to a different area.
0: And then let's say you see them and you see maybe like a grade two polyp, but they're like, so the polyp that's kind of, you know, maybe at the level of the middle turbinate, but they don't have any symptoms. What do you do for those patients?
1: Yeah, so if, again, the symptoms, unfortunately, aren't that great in terms of linking it up to what we see. And so if it's just a polyp, maybe I would consider doing like a Medrol dose pack. But if I see mucin, I'm more likely to use a little bit higher and longer extended uh, steroid. We do have some steroid, eluding depots that are available. That may come into play down the road. Um, I don't like them so much for our situation because if there's a lot of eosinophilic mucin, you know, I don't know if putting in a a steroid depot is going to be enough For that patient population. So I'll try the oral steroids first. And then again, it just depends on how angry, because if it just looks like water balloon polyps, you know, those that you sometimes you see, you're like, I think a Medrol dose pack is probably going to be enough, because honestly, if I went in and just popped them, they probably would go away, right? And then sometimes if they're amenable, I can do an in-office, just a quick uh, polypectomy too.
0: And if you do like a medrol, do you see them back at six weeks? You see them back in a year, six
1: months? How does that follow up?
0: Are you like, I got to follow this great new polyp?
1: I think it just, again, it depends on what that nasal endoscopy looks like and how reliant these patients are. And um, some of my patients, I can tell that they're like, well, I see this peanut butter or like the stuff in my irrigations. And they're signed up for the patient portal. I'm like, okay, just drop me a note on the patient portal that, you know, you feel good about it. Or if I'm really concerned that I'll be like, okay, let's do the steroid. And then I want to see you back at least four to six weeks after you've restarted your steroid irrigations, you have finished this course of steroids, and I wanted to see how you're doing, and then we'll set you free again. So that situation is going to be how well I know this patient, how feasible it is, and you know, how reliable are their symptoms and, and their nasal endoscopy.
2: Yeah. It's, it's tricky, too, when the patient's like, I feel good. And then you look in there and you're like, oh, but it, it doesn't look as perfect as I want it to look. There's, you know, there's that little something. Do I treat that? Do I treat my exam or do I treat the patient yeah. sometimes? It's, you know, it can be kind of tricky. Yeah,
1: exactly, to your point. So maybe it's just that they, if they just restarted or used their steroid irrigations more regularly, if it's a pretty, like small polyp or the they just, there's some polyps, they just look really bland. They may respond to that and then you can save your oral steroids, right? So I agree with you, um, Ash. It's, it's just, that's a hard one, but you have to remember that this is still a quality of life disease. And if you don't think that that polyp is going to ultimately lead to a florid exacerbation, then it's okay to be cons- more conservative with their treatment.
2: And then, you know, lastly, can we talk about biologics? Do do biologics, you know, have a role in treatment of AFRS?
1: Yeah, a very exciting area. And in allergic fungal rhinosinusitis, it's not very clear. There's actually a couple of clinical trials that are ongoing right now because all the clinical trials that included biolog that were done with biologics excluded AFS patients specifically. So even though you have the indication for polyps for these biologics, that patient population was not specifically examined. And so there's actually um, several trials and more to come that are specifically targeted against allergic fungal. So there is a one uh, that's actively enrolling right now for uh, dupilumab, in patients who've already had a a sinus surgery in the past and now are recurrent polyps, and they're enrolling. It's a randomized controlled trial. Uh, So if you have patients who you think might be candidates, we are one of the sites for doing that. There's a a handful of other sites across the country that are also involved. There, we're about to launch another one that is also looking at dupilumab, but at the time of surgery. So that's going to be launching sometime soon. And then a couple of the other uh, companies, although they haven't done the trials, they are um, looking at the data. Uh, for, so anti-IgE, you know, you would think that that would be a, a strong role for that. But just keep in mind that those biologics sp- trials specifically excluded allergic fungal. That being said, it does still fall under that type 2 inflammatory disease process. So if you do uh, happen to have a patient with allergic fungal that doesn't respond to other treatments and you feel like you've done a really good job with the surgery and they don't have any other surgical needs that need to be addressed, then I think a biologic is reasonable, but the right choice is still unclear, especially for this patient population.
0: And then is there a role at all for
1: immunotherapy? Yeah. So actually, UT Southwestern is probably the area that the the institution has looked at this question the most. And I think the ultimate answer is if it doesn't seem to change the disease process and the life of this allergic fungal rhinosinusitis, but if they are an allergic patient then immunotherapy can help for allergy symptoms. But in terms of the course of allergic fungal and how they do, it doesn't seem to have much of an effect. But I
0: find that a lot of AFRS patients don't always have the classic sneezing, watery. I mean, some of them do, but there's a handful of them that don't. So I always kind of ask them, like, if you have those symptoms, it might help you with those. But it's a lot of resources and time and missed work days, missed school days, depending on if they're doing shots or drops and things like that. I feel like we took so much of your time, and I could keep going. But
1: <laughs> I'm like, oh, I love this disease process. But yeah, what I when you when you were saying that we were gonna talk about this and we're gonna spend an hour, I'm like, uh, yeah, it depends on what kind of questions you ask. Because as you can see, we can spend hours on this and uh, fun, fun.
2: Right. Any any final pearls or tips to close us out?
1: No, but allergic fungal rhinosinusitis is an amazing disease. I've built my career on it and love it. So uh, if you have any questions, feel free to send me an email on it and happy to answer it. And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Thank you for taking the time.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, Make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted
2: by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan.
0: Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with
1: support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from
2: Taylor's version Hess Social Media and PR by Chi Ding Thanks again for listening and see you next week.